Some time ago, my friend Mike called me and said, Steve, I have a message for you. You have to make a podcast. It's very important. Do it now. And I said, okay, I will. Can you provide me with extra time to do that during my busy schedule? He said he couldn't do that. But then I managed to free up some time. So here's my podcast, Audio Chimera. This is episode number 27. My opinion is important to you. And let's just see how important my opinion really is. Listen to this podcast. Recently, I bought a shredder, and then after a few days went by, I received an email. What did you think of this product? Write a review. Do you really want my review? Here. It shreds paper like it's supposed to. Does this happen to you? Every time I buy something online, I get a follow-up survey. I buy something in a store and there's a survey link at the bottom of the receipt. There's even a survey for the post office on the receipt when I send a package to an eBay buyer. Me, Nana. I guess I'm supposed to believe that all this information is being channeled to companies who will then use this information to improve their products and or services. Or maybe find new ways to advertise them. And no doubt there is some part of all this in which companies are gathering more data on me and my buying habits. But it seems a larger aspect of all this is the accumulation of information for big data. But what is big data? Wikipedia? Big data is a term used to refer to the study and applications of data sets that are so big and complex that traditional data processing application software are inadequate to deal with them. Big data challenges include capturing data, data storage, data analysis, search, sharing, transfer, visualization, querying, updating, information privacy, and data source. There are a number of concepts associated with big data. Originally, there were three concepts. Volume, variety, velocity. Other concepts later attributed with big data are veracity, i.e. how much noise is in the data, and value. One of the first things that happens when we name something is that we remove its mystery. Name it, define it, limit it. Imagine a vast storehouse of knowledge, images, and stories common to all humanity. Jung's collective unconscious filled with Plato's ideal forms. As humans, we can all tap into this bank of knowledge and understand it instinctively without words. Our humanity allows for complete comprehension of these contents. We just know things intuitively, but when we attach a name or label to it, it concretizes the thing. No longer mystical, the object is under our control through language. We name it, we own it. See Adam in the Garden of Eden. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. Life can be full of mystical and transcendent experiences. 
I've spoken about some of mine in other podcasts, number three and number 25, but as humans we find many ways to demythologize these experiences. And that's not always a bad thing. When the Catholic Church started using the vernacular instead of Latin for Masses, that was a positive step. Unfortunately, many devout churchgoers complained that it removed the mystery from the Mass. Like you should not know who or what you are worshipping, or even what you are saying. For an example on the negative side of demythologizing, people walk through museums and graze the art. Instead of taking the time to really look at and examine an object, they take photos of things to prove that they were there and that they saw it. But did they really see them? That photograph and the act of snapping the photo removes them from direct experience with the art. The same is true of filming a song at a concert. Just listen to the music. Researchers often see quantity over quality. Rather than examine how a thing is with qualitative research, they seek to reduce it through quantitative research. How many, how often, how big, how small, that sort of thing. They seek the proper number, or N. One might say the ends justify the means. Then again, all of us podcasters are constantly checking our analytics to see how many people are listening to us, so I guess we're guilty as well. And here's a special shout-out to my listeners in Japan. Domo arigato. But can this microscopic mathematical observation yield truly meaningful results? I recall a conversation my wife was having with her former dissertation advisor years after that process had been completed, and they had both gone on to other research endeavors. They had formerly experimented on animal muscles, focusing on muscular dystrophy. And while my wife continued with that same paradigm, her advisor had switched to experimenting with the effects of drugs on cell cultures. When my wife cited the difference between what happens on a cell's level with what occurs in an animal, her former advisor reluctantly admitted that there might be a difference with a slightly disdainful, oh, with a whole animal, yes, that's true. But does stripping something down to its component parts or dissecting it with mathematics really allow you to understand the bigger picture? For me, to anatomize or atomize anything deconstructs it beyond meaning and or drastically changes its meaning. There is destruction inherent in deconstruction. I mean, just look at the words. Type or write deconstruction and then remove the con. And can anything be meaningful when you get so close that there is more space between the matter than there is matter itself? Lots of numbers may be meaningful, but they also might mean nothing more than just lots of numbers that can be manipulated. Isn't it true that 95% of all statistics are wrong? And while I am not math-phobic, I do have a distrust of people using only math to prove things. For example, someone postulated the existence of dark matter. Of course, we can't see it, but those working on the idea proved that it existed through equations. But we still can't see dark matter, so does the math only prove that the math exists? Someone needs to explain this to me, without using math. And by all means, write that review on Yelp and TripAdvisor. I've been known to do those as well. 
But before you write that review, taste the food and savor it. And worry later about how many stars it may deserve or how many likes and views your review might get. But I'm still hoping I get big in Japan. Anything you want to hear more about from this podcast? I can elaborate. Just send your request to stephenschramm at musifier.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S-C-H-R-U-M at musifier, M-U-S-O-F-Y-R.com. Or leave a message at 724-835-4074, and I'll see what I can do. I receive no cash for products I mentioned, but please feel free to throw money at me to advertise here. For more information on my works, check out my website, musifier.com. For written works, search for me on Smashwords as Stephen Schramm or Musifier, or find me on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. This is Stephen Schramm. Thanks for listening to Audio Chimera. <laughs>